Hello and welcome to Artistically Ours Newcast podcast. The podcast hosted by myself, New uh, Artistically Our. As with past episodes, we highlighted on the themes of what can be done to improve stuff on neurodivergent people by looking at the support services and highlighting lack of awareness, understanding and accommodations that autistic people need and neurodivergent people deserve and looking at what things can be done and what are the problems within society for autistic and neurodivergent people. This episode that touches on that and starts to explore this from a different angle. As as I said, we we've look over the past examples on the lack of support awareness and understanding, this looks at the interventions that are there for when the autistic person may be referred to for additional support and require uh, therapies or recommended to by a medical professional or at a point of diagnosis. This episode will see have me chatting to Emily Price. Emily Price is an is a speech and language therapist, and we look at what is speech and language therapy and the current state of speech and language therapy, and what is it that she does in speech and language therapy. Touching on what what actually is it and where you might be referred to for speech and language therapy and some of the communicative differences autistic and neurodivergent people have. As I said, this is a podcast of a first and something that I wish to explore in future episodes, talking to people of other professions, whether you're a mental health therapist, occupational therapist, and people who help diagnose and understand autistic and neurodivergent people. These interviews will give you a chance to have people who are autistic, neurodivergent, whether that's having conditions like dyspraxia, dyslexia, ADHD, in such professions, and looking at the issues that affect you and the questions you might have for people in those professions and asking what is it that needs to improve and what are the state of services and interventions for autistic neurodivergent people. This comes after the episode and the idea of a regional reminders campaign for a guideline as like regulation and statutory regulation and looks at autism interventions and interventions for neurodivergent people. This podcast hopes to look at the solutions and have a wider conversation on such important inter- issues and so this will 
hope will I would hope for you to be involved in the conversation around this. So I would want to hear your questions and your experiences and thoughts on such matters. If you have any thoughts, ideas and questions about what you hear from tonight's interview on the podcast, please email newocast at neworainbowproject.com or you can uh, contact uh, on social media at UK on Twitter and Rainbow Project on other social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. And so with that, you will also be able to use the hashtag Ask Autistically on the Rollcast pod if you've got any questions, ideas and comments which you'd like to share publicly on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and the main social media platforms. And with that, today's interview. My name is Emily Price. I am an autistic speech and language therapist and I'm based in Greater Manchester in the UK. So I am autistic. I don't have a diagnosis of ADHD. I definitely have like attention differences and difficulties. Yeah. That's the thing with like ADHD or ADHD treats and autism and neurodivergent conditions. It's definitely quite confusing to navigate what's what and what condition relates to that. And it's hard to know whether that could be ADHD or not. And it's definitely the biggest predicament I end up thinking at a certain point. I guess that still trying to navigate the, you know, complexities of neurodivergency. I got you to come on also to talk about your occupation because it's something that clearly works with autistic and neurodivergent people and it's something that autistic and neurodivergent people may have been referred to and had experience of. Introduce to uh, me what language therapy is exactly. The role of of a speech and language therapist so i'm going to just say slt because yeah. it's a bit of a mouthful to say isn't it yeah so the role of an slt varies depending on who you work with the type of difficulty you're supporting with but slts generally help to support speech language and communication needs in both children and adults and we can work in a range of settings so schools hospitals we tend to work alongside lots of other professionals such as teachers nurses occupational therapists families carers so we can support with for instance language difficulties language delays in children speech sound difficulties stammering voice disorders um, even adults who have had a stroke and need support with their communication and we can even work in criminal justice system and mental health services even in gender services so um i've got a friend who is yeah she works at a service in manchester that supports trans and non-binary people i specifically support with autistic children and adults so i i only work with uh, neurodivergent people and the type of work that i do is very specialist because as we know when you support in autistic people the communication part it tends to be only one aspect and so 
what I'm referring to here is having a robust understanding of sensory processing, trauma, executive functioning, monotropism, uh, masking, demand avoidance, ableism. Yeah. And this is where professionals go wrong because they tend to focus on traditionally, like what is their scope of practice? So, yeah. you know, the occupational therapist, for example, would, would be looking at sensory needs, you know, motor difficulties, and then they leave the communication part to the SLT or even the SLT saying, well, you know, the anxiety, that's not my remit, you know, that's for the psychologist. And this is where inappropriate supports for autistic people arise because a large part of my work involves addressing the whole communication environment, you know, working with professionals to support children with their communication needs. And so, yeah, that might be, be advising on strategies, communication adaptations, slowing down your rate of speech breaking down instructions, providing visuals, you know, but that's, that's yeah. only one, one small part of my job. Have you had speech and language therapy support? Yeah, this is something that I actually have had, but it's like a long time ago when it was seven or eight, maybe just before I had my autism diagnosis, but after my dyspraxia diagnosis, which I had about six or seven, and like I remember at that point, I was referred to occupational therapy. It's nothing that I really vividly remember. I feel like I only remember when I think my mother said I went to a few, few more than that. And from the area, it's like that she described off it. Like she referenced I was focusing more of the, like the single area of like so slowing down your speech, seeing I need to slow down and control the tone of the voice. And I, from what you say about it, I don't think it was as encompassing as what you do as in looking at, as you say, you burn out your sensory issues and the environment and the, like things that can cause some speech and language difficulties. Yeah, so you have that direct lived experience, which I'm very aware of my privilege. And I, I do not know what it's like to experience the difficulties that you have. And so yeah. it's really, really important that I, you know, acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, when I work directly with an autistic young person or adult, it tends to be around identifying their communication and social communication difficulties or exploring their autistic profile. And so, you know, identifying what their preferences are, uh, what their specific areas of need are, you know, do they struggle to express their emotions? Do they struggle to request sensory breaks? Do they struggle to advocate for themselves in healthcare? And so it's this very broad kind of role um, and work that I do. I'm also a trainer and this is a large part of my work. So I deliver trainings to schools and NHS teams about autism, ableism, neurodivergent affirming practice. And it challenges all those deficit narratives that autistic children have social impairments. I'm also a supervisor. And so I provide consultations to SLTs who are looking to change their practice and adopt more affirming supports that honour autistic styles of communication, attention and processing. And there aren't a huge amount of practitioners practising in this way because they're still ingrained in that medical model that dominates healthcare and education and is failing autistic people. You know, people who follow me on social media will know how much I advocate and get off, get on my soapbox. On social media, it might appear that I, I don't know, I'm direct and 
I don't have feelings, but what people are not seeing under the surface is like a lot of anxiety <laughs> and rejection sensitivity every time I post something that is contrary, you know? Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that people don't understand in a wide area of like speech and language therapy and like the support services around like people who are new with and were autistic and they were divergent. Other people who were most likely to use our services of speech and language therapy, but you yourself, as you can hint at, that you um, are frustrated that you are the one of the few people in your profession with that lived experience of knowing what it's like to be autistic and having the social like challenges and differences and like the burnout, the sensory issues that actually end up being like it should be an advantage because you know what you can empathize a bit more of the uh, patients and the people that you're working with in terms of who's been referred to your uh, services. Yeah. Definitely. As you were saying then, you know, it seems like it's providing an important role at with your training and your support network of speech language therapy that you actually work with the, uh, you know, wider groups of the NHS, you know, whether like mental health support to schooling. So I suppose it's like playing a part like in a community or network of like an autistic person you, uh, you know, work with. So what is it like? So how does the role engage and network with like the wider like community of support and how important it is for a speech and language therapist like yourself or to uh, be involved in a group of support network about an autistic person you may be working with? It's a big question. I mean, I feel, I, I always feel torn every day about the work that I do because you're challenging the masses, you're challenging these systems that have been in place for decades. And I feel this I feel in a real bind sometimes about, I don't know, like I've got certain values and principles when it comes to supporting the people that I do, but at the same time, I'm constantly trying to get that balance of like not going in too hard and too fast in terms of, you know, trying to educate people because many autistic adults who come to me are at different, different stages of their journey. And so many have that ingrained internalized ableism as do i still and so it's really difficult to <laughs> to not get to not kind of spew all this like right you can just be who you are you know you don't have to mask and you know yeah. uh, <laughs> it's really difficult because it's it's a process it, it's a lifelong yeah. journey of unlearning and so yeah. oh, well i was asking like the importance of like uh, speech language therapy to be able to work with like the like uh whether it's like a mental health therapist and as you say you work with like people in teaching and in schools but the point of like in terms of the journey of you know when they were divergent person an autistic person you're working with is quite important and you know working on that entire internalized ableism so what is it like when in like as to when you're working with children the working with adults in speech language therapy or well autistic what are the things that you tend to have to support them with yeah 
Yeah. Well, in some ways, um, it's it's a lot harder working with um, older children, teenagers and adults than it is working with the very young children. Because what happens is over the course of that person's life, they're accumulating more and more trauma and negative experiences of just being who they are in the world. And so, you know, when when I'm supporting you know, young people and adults, you, you're often dealing with like this, lay, these layers upon layers of factors that are presenting them with difficulties today. Whereas with, with a child, you know, perhaps they've not, they've not um, accumulated that as much. And so with, with the older clients, you're working with a lot of internalized ableism, which, you know, that it comes to the mental health stuff. So you're often dealing with the mental health struggles and, you know, the social trauma and how that's manifesting in the relationships now, you know, romantic relationships, family relationships, friendships. So it's a lot more complex. Um, I'm not saying the person is complex because I don't like yeah. that. I'm saying the, you know, the the whole situation is complicated, and so I tend, so my work tends to be with with those older clients um, rather than you know under tens really. Yeah, that that's kind of my remit. Whereas you know one of my friends, colleagues, she very much supports the younger children with uh, AAC. So yeah. yeah, there's 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 lots of different uh, types of work that you do with autistic individuals. Yeah, as you were saying with the you know when you're younger and like supporting the under tens. I think it's probably more developed in your speech looking at, you know, uh, how to like pronounce and, you know, like ex- express your communication and working how to say your communicate your needs. And mm-hmm. as I said, you know, with AAC, whether that's working with, you know, like spe- semi speaking and non speaking autistic people to actually develop and work on those tools for them to communicate in a way that they are able to do so. But as the same with adults, then as I say, I guess it's more complex then because rather than just focusing on the developmental aspect of developing those speech and language skills or those communication skills, however that person communicates, it's more focused, as I say, on social aspects and then working on those like aspects of mental health speech as you know being an issue and where that now I guess they're working on more advocating for their needs in a more complex system and but as you said rather than referring to the com- person as complex but hopefully more open to a more complex world and everything's a bit more harder than they are me part as a child yes Absolutely. As I said, like, you know, like, uh, but when to talk about, like, what can make for a good or bad experience of speech language therapy? And, like, and to see what you can draw from your own experience of that and what things have you learned in speech language therapy and the things that you have been able to teach others in your profession about what can make a good and bad experience in 
speech and language therapy. So because of the nature of the work that I do, it, it does depend on what area that you're supporting with. Um, so sessions can look very different. Um, so some speech and language therapists might do more assessment work. So they, they, you know, they may administer language tests um, to gauge what the person's levels of understanding are. Whereas some SLTs will do more therapy support type work. Um, so if you're working with children, for example, who have speech sound difficulties, then your sessions are going to be very, very centered around, you know, practicing speech exercises. When it comes to my work, um, as I've alluded to, because I work in a different way to what traditional speech and language therapy would look like, my sessions, if I do do therapy sessions, which you know, even that in itself, that traditional model of, right, we assess and we treat people. You know, I think a lot of people have this idea that, right, we're going to have 12 sessions now and we're going to do these drills, we're going to do these exercises, and then we're going to get all these outcomes and targets and then hooray, like discharge. A lot of my work is indirect. And so it's working with the people around the autistic person um, to help support their communication and basically quality of life. Um, and so that might be education, understanding. It might be supports and strategies of how they can um, support support the person's communication, you know, expression and understanding. It can be helping them to understand their own autistic profile better, you know, to do that work around that self-discovery, that kind of self-disclosure work. Um, because the thing is, is that it's all good and well, me having a session with an autistic child or adult and you know working on certain things and here's stuff that you can do you know to help get your needs met better but if they go out of that therapy room and back into you know their their classroom or back into the you know the quote-unquote real world then it doesn't really matter how much work I do with them because people around them aren't changing, right? And so yeah. the communication environment, that's where the change needs to happen. Now, that doesn't always mean we don't do direct work because that's not true. Again, you know, if you're supporting with language language difficulties and, you know, you're trying to develop a communication method, you know, AAC, then of course, you know, you're gonna do some of that direct work. And also with, with the older ones, you know, I might do pieces of work around certain things. So, you know, self-advocacy or or exploring certain aspects but usually it is indirect work because the therapeutic environment is the people in the environment that those are the people that they're going to be interacting with the autistic person every day and so it doesn't really matter if they they develop a relationship with me they're not going to be seeing me every day right yeah. so it's very very individual and my work does involve more of that counseling therapeutic type work even though i'm yeah. not a trained counselor as you like internet that brought you uh people i guess people who uh you know might not understand about speech and language therapy and something i might not understand myself before this interview as this is not as a child something that was focused towards and something that it may be hard to get that specialist therapy that looks more at, as I said, looking at the autistic person's profile and understanding the needs and helping them understand their own emotions, how to communicate and understand what the, how 
they will need some to advocate for them. And by also saying that the professional for beach and ambush therapy can actually help others around the autistic person, as I said, teachers, parents, guardians, to learn more and educate more about how autistic people communicate. A good thing is being able to listen upon autistic people's needs and, as I said, rather than just tailoring it all specifically to, like, skills and not... Uh, focusing too hard on like a certain aspect of this quite forward uh, from this event to look at or also something that may be not um, more versed in but you know what is the like able to understand the more first speech language differences within uh, communication speech language so autistic people may experience like verbal dyspraxia and speech apraxia so I've have you uh, got any, what's your understanding of those conditions and what are uh, people in your profession able to do with, uh, to, to help uh, those people with uh, those speech language conditions? And before, you know, I, I, I talk about this, again, I just want to recognise that I, you know, I do not struggle with these difficulties. And so you yourself will probably be able to educate me a bit more. But what's really important to bring to people's attention is that we need a lot more awareness raised about autistic dyspraxics and apraxics, because it's not something that's taught really on our training and if it is it's not really well understood in in terms of how it how it fits with you know the neurodiversity paradigm and so to sum it up nicely i'll quote tara vance the founder of neuroclastic so she put a twitter post out um i think last week which was anyone who is not actively supporting reliable communication access for severely apraxic non-speakers is not neurodiversity affirming. If a provider does not understand apraxia, sensory processing, agnosias, or executive function, they are dangerous. Now, you know, I'll be honest, this is not my specialist area. And yeah. it's only it's only by immersing myself in that, in the learning. And so here's here's what I've learned. Conditions that are associated with motor disinhibition are apraxia, dyspraxia, autism, um, ADHD. Um, obviously, autism is not a condition, but you, you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, so apraxia is that total loss of execution in motor planning. Dyspraxia is partial loss. This motor planning disability is often called the brain and body disconnect. So bringing this back to speech and communication, engaging in speech and oral movements is difficult and so in the slt community there are differing views about verbal dyspraxia also known as developmental verbal dyspraxia childhood apraxia of speech so there's disagreements about terminology itself and it's quite controversial among the community because the theory and underlying mechanisms are they, they differ and so accessing appropriate support is difficult there's actually a parent on twitter that i follow called georgia wilson and she's a parent of a child with verbal dyspraxia now she's a really good person to follow who posts frequently about her challenges accessing appropriate support for her child and then philip rays who's an, an autistic um actually i'm not sure if he's autistic but he's an apraxic apraxic um, non-speaker. So they wrote an article for Neuroclastic and listed 10 things to know about apraxia. And that included, his lack of spoken words is not caused by a lack of intelligence, 
and communication must be made available for those who cannot use mouth words or struggle to use mouth words. And what we know is that there's a lot of gatekeeping in the professional community in how non-speakers, minimal speak, minimally speaking people are supported. And so academics will frequently talk over people, um, AAC users who, who benefit from, you know, rapid prompting method, for example, facilitated communication. And they've, these things have historically been torn down by researchers and written off as pseudosciences. And again, you know, I recommend an article by Neuroclastic by Michelle Sarah, Sarah, who writes about the damage that's been done to non-speaking autistics through all these misleading articles. Um, and I can speak from experience that the majority of SLTs look down on these methods and have written them off in favour of the research. Uh, I think, as I said, even though we know like a spe specific specialist in this area, it's a pretty good thing to, to ask to be able to understand how much people within the speech language therapy uh, field within the UK know about this stuff and, you know, are able to support people fully with it. As you say, say that, it's not something that's commonly un understood and something that should definitely be improved on. As you, you like saying that, you know, that there is a bit of conflict between the academia and professional area as to their actual needs and interests of an autistic, apoxic, a dyspraxic person with semi-to-non-verbal speaking. And as I say, it's that any uh, you know, person's speaking issues is uh, like should be is accepted and should be accepted to use any way that they uh, communicate or are able to. And with that, uh, what so what are the things that you like from you said that you uh, worked in like training like parents and carers and teachers and what like in terms like why you were uh, been like got a specialty in what are those things that in terms of educating other people on certain stuff other things that you tend to focus on and our aspect of your own education when you speak out in a public speak in like public speaking with your job to all like speaking about on social media and like to educate people on yeah um well, I am in a unique position because um, families of autistic children will seek me out and they contact me because of the fact that I'm an autistic SLT. So they find me through online communities or by word of mouth. So this means that they already know that I'm autistic and they're at the wit's end trying to find appropriate affirming support for the child, you know, from a person who not only is knowledgeable in neurodivergent affirming therapy, but is neurodivergent themselves. And this is why I feel incredibly lucky and have heaps of gratitude that people would come to me asking for help. Um, every email request or website submission I get from a parent or carer asking for support is a huge honor because to put their faith in another professional after repeated experiences of being failed and let down and told that the child needs social skills training so that they can be fixed, it's massive. Um, and coming back to, you know, supporting semi-speaking and non-speaking people, as I say, there's a lack of understanding of the experiences. And so, you know, the understanding isn't there. And this is why professionals need to increase their knowledge about autism 
and those intersections with with trauma sensory processing and i'm wondering for you like what what was your experience of speech and language therapy uh as i said that like when i was like i said you know it's one of those difficult things that it's hard to remember look back on because you know like sometimes when you're younger and stuff like this is quite blue and so it, it's definitely more of, I think it was only for like a short period of time, as to say that, when people have referred this, in like either for that was like set of weeks over a short period of time without having a like necessary referral or, you know, going back to at the later years and lack, sometimes there's lack of our later support, as, as I said earlier on that, when he was diagnosed with autism at the time, in 2010 or 11, was referred to as Asperger's that I was diagnosed with as change of the times I accepted the use of uh, autism as label for myself. So, like, I think sort of support with the focus more on dyspraxia. Now, as like my understanding of what support I had, it kind of comes from what my mother was able to tell me about us when she went with me for these sessions. And I said, let's more about, like, she said they were talking about more about how we need to, like, speak slowly to sound clearly and just, like, certain stuff like that rather than maybe, like, useful tools and ideas of how to, I guess, to communicate effectively or, like, maybe, like, you know, perform pronounce things a bit better mm. and as like it's like something that you know like speech language with like dyspraxia and uh, autism like like you s- still have challenges with you now like sometimes I find myself a bit muddled with words and I think as you said it's like that brain and body district where you can end up like like thinking and words saying another or to uh as you said like get a bit stumbling on your words and maybe like not pronounce things as clear and like not understanding how to get your tone or projection of your voice and even with like so many sessions, it's hard to know how to do that and you know like these like traits still you know, like don't end after like those couple of sessions and uh, something that if you, you know, got dyspraxia, it's like part, part and parcel of it has become like my experience of that. Yeah. And you know what? Like, it's not to say that supporting somebody like yourself by teaching them strategies around, you know, okay, if I slow my rate of speech down, that might mean that, um, I'm more easily understood or, you know, if I use, we call them compensatory strategies. So if I use more, you know, hand movements or uh, certain gestures, then that could support, you know, people's understanding of what I'm trying to say, you know, and, and that stuff is, is part of it, right? If, if the person, if that person wants to, but as we know, when it comes to autism, it, it's so much more complicated because even if, even if we, you know, look at somebody diagnosed with selective mutism, right? Yeah. So this presentation is often oversimplified as being an anxiety disorder, but in the context of autism, it, it's too binary. You know, we know there's a yeah. high percentage of autistic people who would meet the diagnosis of, we, they call it selective mutism. We're now trying to evolve in that terminology. So we started to use, you know, um, situational mutism, but there's there's some people that aren't comfortable with that term and so you know there are there are different terms but yeah. it's like 
how much does the average SLT know about about the potential drivers for an autistic person experiencing, you know, mutism? And even the term selective mutism, as I say, it, it's disliked by many semi-speaking people. And so this affects the way that these individuals are supported. It would be unusual, for example, to see an SLT consider robust AAC, such as a speech device or, you know, um, a real comprehensive, like we call them pod book, for example, for those kids who are diagnosed with selective mutism. You know, it's it's like there's this assumption that, well, for those kids, they don't need alternative means to communicate like those non-verbal kids. And instead, the go-to interventions are behavioural-based programmes that aim to elicit speech so they can get the child to talk. And so they use techniques like graded exposure, you know, from getting the child from whispering to talking louder, um, stimulus fading, shaping, desensitisation. Well, none of this aligns with the neurodiversity paradigm. And so it doesn't consider ableism and the emphasis you know on like achieving speech autistic communication isn't understood neither is yeah. burnout shutdown anxiety and trauma so in these contexts with with those children i don't generally see professionals exploring and encouraging alternative methods but they simply you know give i don't know pecs or simple visual supports like visuals on a key ring or help and break cards. But for yeah. the autistic child whose difficulty may lie in not feeling safe enough to express themselves, then no amount of visual supports is going to make them communicate. And this is where staff in schools get really confused because they're like, well, I've put a piece of pen and paper in front of them, but they're not, they're not communicating with me. And it's like, yeah, because it's more complicated than that. Like from like the conversations like I had on this podcast, like many people have said that the uh, experiences of, you know, discussing issues of the community online and within the autistic and neurodivergent community has progressed quite a lot. But like as I say, like the prof professional and uh, support community is lagging behind. And as I say, that's quite the case with like other like in the broader area of speech language therapy or occupational therapy. As I said, with like stuff like burnout, anxiety, anxiety shutdowns, sensory overloads, that thing is greatly need, needs to be understood as it does, uh, as you say, affect a person's ability to communicate, whether as you say, even if it's on paper to, uh, like, speaking it the, uh, out, out loud, and that's something that people don't often understand, and that it does heighten, you know, like, your traits or, and, uh, of autism or uh, or any co-occurring conditions, and it's that thing if like you're in burnout or sat down that you know you won't you know, like motor you know difficult yeah traits will be raised and you know it's not something that you feel in control of and sometimes like that it's net as I say the experience of that isn't binary. Um, as you said that you know you're in like a profession you would like to see more people advocating for using tools of AA devices, AAC devices even, and resources like that to to be used wherever, like adults or, or and children who have who are semi-speaking, non-speaking, and you know to be able to use those devices uh, um, to communicate if, if they need to do so, and me and so do you think that that there are enough uh, be like 
funding for like supporting those uh, investment in providing people with those devices and uh, is um, many people again getting the chance to know about them and you know being afforded the chance to try to use them and as a means of communication well when it comes to encouraging alternative means of communication i'd say it's very variable within across the slt profession so there are lots of people doing really good work out there in the private sector i'm unsure what this looks like in the nhs because i just don't work there And I know that there are huge barriers to accessing appropriate AAC support, but I know lots of individual therapists doing great work. So I can only speak from my own experience of the work that I do, but I do see varying degrees of the quality. And so most of the families who come to me who have had pecs in the provision or simple visual supports for the child in school, well, they don't provide sufficient opportunities for the child to communicate and develop language. And so I've worked in specialist schools myself. And unless the child is receiving specialist provision, so what I mean by that is we work in a model of speech and language therapy, which is like this pyramid. And so the bottom of the pyramid, we call them universal supports. And then above that is targeted and then specialist. So uh, in the model, in, in the schools that I worked in, you know, that top little little tiny triangle of specialists, yeah. um, those were the children that would generally receive more, um, they call it intense work. So um the 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 other kids generally don't get that same quality of input even though they would benefit from it and they need it it's just because they haven't really been identified you know so instead slts will usually advise staff on basic strategies of how to support communication through you know communication adaptations or visuals so where we go wrong as a profession is subscribing to certain ideas that will watch and wait which I just hate that because it just feels lazy and well we'll we'll use this fancy term watch and wait because our services lack uh, you know funding or you know the the capacity to to see these children so we'll just introduce this yes we'll we'll just wait to see how the child is doing or exploring these robust methods of communication whereas we need to be doing this as soon as possible and so supporting multimodal communication can be a challenge because of the lack of understanding in education Uh, in fact there's a training coming up at the end of june that that i'm doing with my friend and colleague elaine mcgreevy and it's how to support autistic multimodal communicators because there's so many myths when it comes to aac And we break these down, we dispel them, and we do a deep dive on appropriate assessment and implementation. So we talk about working with the communication partners, the individual, improving the sensory environment. So tapping into sensory modes of communication as a form of expression, which um, Melbags has done. um, Melbags has got some great stuff out there. Um, So we need to change the narrative as SLTs around supporting um, multimodal communicators. And I also think that SLTs don't really know where to go in terms of accessing information because it's not trained on our degrees. And there's this issue of privilege and power in that many professionals will decide what's best for the individual based on outdated theories, poor evidence and a lack of critically analysing the research. And so SLTs need to be listening to the non-speaking, minimally speaking communities 
and learning from them. So instead of completely writing off certain methods of communication, they need to actually listen to those individuals who are using those because their voices are ignored. And so um, if there are any SLTs listening, I do recommend a Facebook group called Ask Me. I'm an AAC user, which is a great source of information. As you said, with that, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, where, where people end up making go for information. Could be like the wrong sources, or as you said, with like people end up going to academia and academia investment research. Uh, that's out there, and as you said, that it's established that the information is outdated and lacking with a modern understanding within the community of what helps and what is necessity for autistic people to actually uh, avoid trauma and struggling in, in their uh, life. And that that's the difference between, like, I guess, the social and modern me- and medical models. And as you're saying that, it seems that it's an unequal in terms of the support people get, as you said, with that pyramid. And then if like people are suspected to uh, explore robust and, and resilient ways of communication, then it's kind of almost expecting people to wait until they are struggling with communication. And as you would uh, probably agree, that's inherits tentatively form uh, flawed and something that needs to change as shouldn't be the case and something that autistic people like us like a lot of people still think of it as uh, like the high and low functioning areas and that you know like high low support needs that people are often don't understand masking and like the be that the burnout and how that I guess for even like wherever the support needs of an autistic person, you know, at certain points or whenever that they, you know, multimodal communication, you know, would be helpful. And in terms of when you was talking about this, the sensory aspects and the sensory issues or like ways of communication, can you give a brief definition to what you mean by with that? So do you mean how sensory processing can affect communication? Yeah. 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 Um, So again, what, what a lot of professionals don't understand is if we only focus on communication for the autistic person, then we are not going to support the person properly because we know that sensory processing underpins everything. (laughs) So you know, if you're not addressing the the sensory environment um, and the sensory difficulties of the individual, then that is that is directly going to impact the 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 ability to communicate easier or more difficult. So let let's talk about my experiences. So I have hypersensitivity to noise, and that is both with sounds. You know, like if I'm in a co- I always use the example of a coffee shop, right? Because because and I think I use this example because. It, it's very relatable, you yeah. know, to neurotypical people, and it's an everyday, um, uh, it's an everyday experience, I suppose, that people may be able to to connect with. So when I'm in a coffee shop, um, I often just go on my own, actually, and I find that all the machines going off, the noises of things like banging down, the steam, the um, people talking like it is it can be overwhelming and there are times that I, I take my ear defenders now if I was to meet a friend and try and have a conversation with all this going on I have significant difficulties filtering out um, multiple multiple levels of noise and so 
this sensory environment impedes my communication. And so I'm likely to feel overwhelmed to experience, you know, shutdowns because I can't even process information. My ability to um, organize my thoughts and then respond to maybe questions or take my turn in the conversation is drastically like reduced that ability. And so just, just that one sensory, um, just that one sensory aspect of, of auditory is massive. But what about if you have um, sensitivity to, to the light in the coffee shop? You know, the, mo- the constant movement in, in your visual field and, you know, it's, there's just so much in the sensory environment that has a direct impact on people's communication. And this is why SLTs need to really understand sensory processing, because if they don't, then they're not going to be able to support the autistic person in the most helpful, affirming way. Uh, yeah, as you said, you know, audio post- process and there's like a key thing that does impact like communication and socialization because as I said that if you were you know got all those like multiple noises on at once and especially very if you like got uh, two other people within the space with yourself is hard to follow and maintain that conversation and know like what how to listen exactly and properly in that moment as you would went to and that's something that people do need to understand and it's a uh, you know when you also said about sensory uh there's the like say with any of a multimodal uh, ways of communication so yeah like explain some of the different ways of multimodal communication i mean going back to that example you know because I, I do often when people ask me questions because i'm I suppose I'm trying to speak on behalf of, you know, I might, I might retell an experience of a child that I've supported. I often find it difficult because I am not that child. And so recalling that experience for them takes a bit more labor. And so when it comes to my own experiences that I tap into, when we talk about the thing in the coffee shop, what I have to do then is use a lot more compensatory strategies. And that is more hand gestures, you know, I might do more pointing. For example, when I'm being served at the counter, if I'm asking for, you know, can I have a small latte? You know, I'll be like small latte. Um, you know, I might I might just do certain gestures with my arms like you can't see because it's a podcast. But um, and then I might exaggerate certain facial expressions or, you know, and people don't see the, the mental and physical labor that goes into doing that stuff. I often have to lean in and, and focus on the person's mouth because I am really trying to um process what they're saying and it's so hard to do if you're in that kind of environment and so i suppose when it comes to um you know people who are semi-speaking you know multimodal communicators then it's it's just looking at those alternative methods of communication that don't require like so much labor and and also that don't put the responsibility on that person to to make that interaction successful like it's it's about other people in that interaction supporting and so in the instance of the when i'm being served in 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 the coffee shop it's so interesting how i'm the person in that dynamic doing all this labor trying to make myself more understood 
trying to clarify the misunderstanding and and the person is literally talking to me and asking me what I want but not using any any hand gestures not slowing down their speech not writing things down not pointing like which cup do you want you know and I just I find it infuriating because again it's that privilege you know the disabled person is expected to do all the work. Yeah, as I said, it's highlights the more disabling aspects of being artistic and how it like more visualizes or exemplifies the difference in between our communications to other people with this. So and to explore your own experiences of being artistic. So what what was the thing? When did you get diagnosed and what that you discovering you're autistic and getting diagnosed as being autistic. Yes. And just and I'll I'll be open about this, you know, yeah. you sent me some of these questions in advance, which is massively helpful. You know, right. I've got my note I've got my notes in front of me. Um and I'm not ashamed about that because I'll I'll come on to my difficulties in processing and communication a bit later. But um so I was diagnosed as autistic two years ago. Uh, I'm 35 now, and so I grew up having no idea that I was autistic. And instead, my difficulties were always ascribed to mental health. And so I'm very open about this. I was placed in the mental health system from a young age, from around 15, um, because I started to present at you know my GP uh, with with mood difficulties, anxiety. Um, and so from there, it pretty much set off a, tra- a trajectory of accessing, uh, navigating lots of different types of services, like secondary services, tertiary services over the span of, well, between 15 and, um, you know, 33. So I was diagnosed with lots of other mental health conditions. And it was only when I was working with a therapist at the time, so between maybe 28, uh, from 28, age 28 onwards, that they suggested, I'm wondering if you're autistic um, because the things that you've you've shared with me and the difficulties you have, I hear them from my autistic friends. So I was diagnosed initially with um, borderline personality disorder, which as we know now, it, there's a huge, um, th- there's lots of people being diagnosed with that. And in fact, it's autism plus trauma. Yeah. So she, and she, by the way, she now knows that she's autistic herself. So it's quite interesting, but, um, so since, since I did the learning and embarked on that journey of self-discovery, um, it was like, oh my God, now it makes sense. All my difficulties make sense in the context of, of, um, you know, an autism diagnosis, you know, I look back and I make those links all the time and how they're tied into the difficulties that I have associated with being autistic. Yeah, I see that, you know, by the time you discover or get diagnosed, it's that it gives you a better perspective to be able to look at your past life and just work out what, what was being autistic. And as I say, from be, being dis- diagnosed with bipolar-personality uh, disorder even, that... Mm-hmm. Is quite a common thing for women and girls to end up going through those steps of getting multiple diagnoses before getting your autism diagnosis, which now is, seems to be more often in like people in their twenties to thirties. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, what, what, what other, like, traits of you being autistic and more with the, like, the signs and, you know, like, that, no, that people, were, that, that therapist was able to notice that you were autistic or stressed to you that, that you were? Well, I suppose it all stems from mental health. And despite the fact that autism is not a mental health condition, it's just because the world is not set up for us, it's why yeah. there is so it's such an impact on our mental health. You know, if you're trying to survive in a world which isn't set up for you in every aspect, whether that is, you know, physically, emotionally, sensorily, you know, services are not set up for us. Society isn't set up for us because society does not accept us. You know, if you've if you've had a lifetime of being treated and fixed and conditioned to think that there's something wrong with you, which tends to be linked to all the social difficulties and bullying and teasing experiences, which by the way, I was terribly bullied um of course you're going to end up with mental health problems right yeah. so but it, again it's 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 so nuanced because you know it's like what what caused what i experienced mental health difficulties as a result of my social trauma but then because of my communication and social differences it's it's just so complex and so mostly when my therapist brought it up at the time it was around trauma difficulties in relationships not understanding why people do what they do like always yeah. feeling on the outside looking in from a very young age you know looking at looking at other kids and going what what am i missing like what am i not doing right because there's something here that is making me be excluded and left out and i just didn't understand it but at the same time and i still have this now at the same time you you're seeking connection and you want that you want those meaningful relationships but you know that you're not going to get them from those people almost like even if you're like late to early diagnosis that like myself that i was diagnosed i suppose when you're 10 11 it's still quite early on as to a lot of people now getting diagnosed which are can be in your 20s 30s and even older then you know it, it can be that often later on you kind of get a point of like starting to understand and ravel about his autism rather than just knowing you're caught or the word autism with and you're autistic and then it takes you while to understand that so as i said it makes it very difficult complex and actually to work on getting a uh, complex that getting that connection right and that is very difficult as i said they work with people on socializing and that uh like social aspects when you work with adults and then it's that thing that these uh issues of uh, communication can all also affects our socialization as sad to know how like to communicate with you know holistic people and maintain their relationships as you say you know it can also link to feeling a bit burnt out and exhausted from communications but say you want to feel connected but at the same time it can be quite draining so one of the things that I, when I was looking through these questions, one of the questions was around what should people know about neurodivergent and disabled communication? What I want people to know is that most of us have varying degrees of 
language processing and executive functioning struggles. I want people to be careful about making assumptions about someone's processing speed because there's this tendency to assume that those quote unquote high functioning autistics have less processing struggles, but this is not true. And I'll speak from my own experience here. This is coming to light more and more every day. Despite the fact that I'm a working professional and I literally support people's communication for a living, it may surprise people when I tell them that I have significant processing difficulties. And what this looks like for me is I often struggle to answer questions that are too open-ended and that don't require a yes or no response. I usually have to ask follow-up questions to drill down as to what I'm being asked because I don't know where to start. I'm pulling the question apart in my head and thinking about individual words to identify what each of those means. And then once I've figured out what I'm being asked and consider options, I'm then trying to formulate what I wanna say. <laughs> well, imagine having to do this, all these complex processes in real time when someone asks you, asks you a simple question. So it could take me up to a minute, two minutes or more to even understand the question, which is actually a long time when you're in this real time interaction. So even yeah. the question, how are you, is asked by a person and you're they're expecting a response within a few seconds. Now, recently I was asked, how are you engaging with this material in terms of a training that I was delivering? And I was utterly overwhelmed. And what happened was I froze and this what compounded this was everything that I added onto my head, in, in my head. So whilst I was trying to work out how to answer, my internal critic was saying, just answer the damn question. Just say something. What's wrong with you? God, just, just answer it. You stupid. Just say something. None of this is the fault of the purse of the other person answering the question, asking yeah. the question. There's no blame. What I'm simply trying to highlight here is the harsh reality of having communication difficulties. And these become more noticeable when I'm in a social situation and because my insecurities ramp up because not only am I trying to navigate the anxiety the social trauma triggers and my knee-jerk reaction to mask I have all those processing struggles of knowing when to jump in knowing when to take my turn reading all those social emotional cues and then observe everyone else speaking fluently and answering questions seemingly effortlessly oh it's so hard stop trying to think it's like you're almost trying to like make to take pay in your head what like has somebody given you the question and you can uh, like draft it up in your head and think like is that what you want to say is that right and you know like working on it so like you can give out the answer that you want to give out and that does take a lot more time for an autistic person because like you may think that you overthink things or like as I said with like building up your own personal experience then you like been you know, working on loads of different factors of what this could mean and what should it really be saying. And as I said, with like anxiety hitting in, a lot of that stuff does build up and makes it harder and delays the uh, process to actually giving an answer. And as you said, with uh, in terms of autism, as I said, it's not mental health condition, but as when we mentioned uh, the social uh, model of autism, then with like it not being a mental health condition, it like our trauma or our experiences that as like can often feel quite oppressed and unequal 
to her peers, then it becomes a situation where it kind of builds up from and then because the social experiences we had as a community does create like mental health struggles and challenges. Yeah. Whatever like deep components or like things are like what do you say are like your autistic experience and how how you experience autism. Yeah, I mean I'm learning more and more as as I go and I think I see this all the time with recently diagnosed autistic adults. Um even within my friends that all of a sudden they, they have these moments daily where you know I'll get a message going oh my god I've just realized like I'm having such an autistic moment and it's like my need for structure and routine and predictability my sameness you know this monotropic thinking style that I have which is you know I find change very anxiety inducing I have difficulty switching my attention when I'm trying to complete a task or when I'm engaged in an activity that I'm enjoying. Um, I get really irritable and agitated when someone tries to um, pull my attention away. So for example, this morning, I'm just, I'm look, I was looking through some of the questions for today and um, I have a six month old and yeah. she, she needed my attention. So she started fussing and I'm trying to answer these questions and I am like, my body is like on fire because I'm getting so irritated because even for me to stop what I'm reading or typing, and shift my attention, even just for like 30 seconds on something else, it's really hard. And so even like the cognitive aspects, it's like, oh my God. And I'll go through, um, I'll go through phases of like being really intensely obsessed with with something. So at the moment, it's puzzle books, it's like crosswords and um, you know arrow words and stuff. And literally, right, I will just keep. I've, I've bought seven books already, and I'm like, I work my way through it. I chuck it in the bin. I buy another one, and it's this like compulsion that I need to like do all the things and exhaust every possible like bit of fun out of something and then I'll just move on to something else. And I said with those shapes, like it is quite complex that or like sometimes get those lines that cross over between autism and ADHD I said with like being hyper focused and like hard to like sift and move on to another task. I think that's like described often as task paralysis. And then you got like that one track mind and then I said to uh, like focused interests of like having to do like certain tasks like a uh, puzzle box and then and also like moving on to another question as you in, said that you only been diagnosed recently but I assume that you've been uh, practicing speech language therapy even so where did the interest in speech language therapy that and what uh, made you uh, interested in that as a job then yeah oh no and there's, there's so many more like, I could spend all day talking about you know how literal I am how I experience like misunderstandings even with autistic other autistic people like yeah. my, my partner pretty sure he's is neurodivergent and honest to god the amount of times you have to go i'm sorry like right start again what do you mean <laughs> i just i'm so literal in my perception of language um and yeah differences in my body language and facial expression like you know if you're autistic and you've experienced you know people pointing out how i don't know your body language is saying this, you know, you're coming across as rude, you're not interested because I've got my arms folded or, um, you know, I'm not making enough eye contact, I'm not nodding enough, you know, like you just end up scrutinizing how you're coming across, you know, and this is masking, you know, like yesterday, so 
it was really interesting actually because yesterday I met up with someone you know we were having like a really honest emotive conversation and then the next minute I saw a friend of mine walk past and they went oh hi Emily right oh my god I like got up and I just became a different person I was like oh hi how's it going oh my god i've not seen you in ages like what are you doing over this end the minute they walked away and i sat down i went back to you know the person that i was um initially and and the person with me was like what was that mm. it's it's just honestly it's it's just this bodily response that's yeah that's definitely a thing that you know like it we end up being quite different uh, with different people else i think it's nothing when you're like autistic and they would say virgins you can end up being like social chameleons like that and that's something that i guess you know when you work in uh, like with people uh, like on certain like understanding that you're all not some that's something that you notice a lot more, especially with adults and only teens, that you've got that more masking and stuff like that. And, you know, elements of autism that come through and that's something that is more complex when you're an adulthood as mm-hmm. to, like, when you're, like, maybe, like, seeing, like, a child always autistic. What was the thing of that made you interested in doing, like, speech-language therapy as you probably started practicing speech-language therapy, maybe before you actually uh, got taken all been autistic? Well, I've had a, an interesting and colourful life because, and I don't know how much this is related to some of, you know, my autistic traits, but when I was growing up, I wanted to be an English teacher because I felt like my only strength in school, and I, I struggled a lot in school, um, I struggled to pass exams and stuff, my strength was in English. So with words, um, you know, analyzing texts, that deep reflective thinking. And so I always wanted to be an English teacher, but when I went to university at 18 to study it, I dropped out after two months and that was because of my mental health and that social anxiety and that sudden change of, you know, having to go to a new place. I didn't know anyone. Obviously I didn't know any of this at the time. When I left university, I then started to work as a teaching assistant uh, for a few years supporting at the time it was you know the special needs department at 21 i decided that do you know what i want to leave this country because this is where all my problems are so i moved to china and i was an english teacher and then i moved to america and then i moved to the czech republic and that was that was my last geographical and then i came back to england and i was like right I need to get a degree. I need to do something. So I started a counselling degree and then I realised actually mm, not the right time. And then I was trying to decide between occupational therapy and speech and language therapy. And occupational therapy seemed like it involved a lot more science, you know, anatomy, um, stuff like that. And I thought, well, you know, I failed my GCSEs, right? So I am bad at that stuff. Turns out I'm actually not bad. A lot of my training involved anatomy and physiology. It turns out I'm not like terrible at science. It was just obviously the way that I learned was not supported and yeah. I don't test well. I to retrain. And it's, I guess it's one of those things that, you know, when you read off, like in the word divergence, people can experience that spiky skill set that, that differs between each person. And especially when you're in school, that, you know, like it's not the, I guess, tailored learning experience and be able to, 
develop the skills I need to have just to be able to survive in that space and know how to, I guess, answer the questions and be able to have the focus and intention to pass those exams. And it seems like you were naturally drawn to, like, things that, like, kind of supported areas of the autism or, like, related to being autistic, you know, like, naturally, instinctively mm. before even getting diagnosed. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I've always had a natural flair for language. I believe that I was one of those, I think they call them like hyperlexic kids. So, you know, my spelling age and my reading age was always like more advanced for my actual age. And yeah, I've always been, you know, I sing, I like doing accents, you know, I think it weaves into that kind of vocal stimming and, you know, having such acute hearing i've got really good auditory discrimination which means when it came to modules on my course that involved speech sounds and phonology i was really really good at that stuff now what were the biggest areas of ableism and opposing ableism to disability rights that impasse in you and that you like to speak and focus on? In fact, this question really um, energised me in itself. I was thinking to myself, right, if I could break down and categorise like the things that I'm most passionate about, what are they? The first one is the, the, the concept of intersectionality. So this is a really interesting topic to me and very, very important because how the autistic person may experience multiple marginalisations and oppressions, it, it's really important for professionals to understand. So we're never just dealing with the quote unquote autism. For example, how a black autistic woman, her communication is could be perceived differently to a neurotypical white community. And then how that impacts on her mental health, her social opportunities, what happens in the interactions in her community, um, and what 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 how people treat her differently, how they may exclude her. And so, for example, for an autistic trans um, or non-binary person, how do they experience layers upon layers of discrimination in that they can doubly mask? You know, it's this masking, it's this passing and how their difficulties may feed into social and romantic relationships. You know, if they have gender dysphoria and social trauma, then that's probably going to present in their relationships. You know, they may not feel seen and safe enough to even express their opinions, even speak. And so this has this domino effect on their their ability to self-advocate, whether that's in work, in healthcare. Um, accessing appropriate healthcare is also an area that I'm passionate about because of my own lived experiences. And also going back to trans and non-binary people, we know that accessing gender affirming healthcare is very difficult. And then the other area that I'm really passionate about is mental health. So speaking again from my own experience, I found it and still find it a real struggle to access appropriate mental health supports. And it's because of this general lack of understanding of intersectionality. So I have a page on my website that, that delves deeper into why many psychological therapies are not appropriate um, because they're designed for the neurotypical brain, whereby generally they might be dealing with one or a select number of problems which don't really consider neurodivergence. So for instance, I've struggled with body dysmorphia and eating disorders and I've typically been given CBT and other behavioural therapies which focus on a behaviour change um, such as weight gain or eating, you know, X amount a day. This usually involves things like meal plans, cognitive restructuring, basic exposure therapy. Well, if you don't drill down and identify the drive factors to my difficulties 
then no amount of behavior change will see lasting change in healing. So my eating disorder and body dysmorphia has a number of drivers that are rooted in different types of trauma, including, you know, sexual objectification, sensory difficulties in the way that clothes feel on my body. So um, when clothes are too tight and they dig into certain areas of my body, it's distressing for me, you know, and then there's the gender dysphoria, you know, living in a small body kept me safe so that I could avoid any teasing and bullying for my appearance. Then you've got the perfectionism and the critical messages that tell me I need to look a certain way in order to be accepted by others and men. So it's complex. A therapist simply giving me exercises to do and telling me to do affirmations ain't gonna cut it. You know, finding a therapist who understands all those factors very, very difficult. And I suppose in some ways I'm looking for a unicorn therapist, you know, that doesn't exist. It's taken me spending lots of money privately, trying to seek a therapist who has a pretty good understanding. And I finally found that. And I think she, I think she's very open and honest about, well, she, you know, she doesn't specialize in all these things, but she's willing to collaborate with me and she has a willingness to learn and understand and adapt how she works. And um, she's also really supported how my communication preferences need to be understood in the therapy room. And then just lastly, linking in with that, I'm really interested in narcissism and I have a deep knowledge about, about that and how, what, what, what I've found from, from lots of autistic people is many have experienced being in relationships with, um, narcissists or, you know, at least people who've exhibited certain tendencies or they've grown up in narcissist families. Now, if you've been on the receiving end of this, then it's going to manifest into your relationships. And so for an autistic person, regardless of if they've been subjected to some of this treatment, they're, they're carrying around gaslighting anyway, because that's how they've experienced the world. But if you add on the extra layer of um, being subjected to narcissist abuse, then you've got all these other layers of gaslighting. Like it seems a lot of the experience or like what motivates you in terms of your, your interests and, uh, you know, disability rights and areas of ableism is from what you've been able to see around you and I guess the people you socialise and come across in your life as like a, a similar, you know, like by having like, you know, a diverse uh, like links in the community has helped you gain your understanding on areas of like gender and you know people of colour that intersectionality to broaden and open your mind to the issues within the community that are important to uh, you know people of marginalised and minority groups so I guess from what you heard of maybe like other peers within the community about issues related to nurses and as said, of mental health and then healthcare. A lot of it then comes from your own experiences as you listed with like body dysmorphia and eating disorders but and with seeing some of the uh, therapies and treatments weren't helpful. But what what are, you know, when you had experiences of eating disorders and uh, body dysmorphia, what are the things that help, help you and what are the things that if people are experiencing those conditions or health issues, other services or right things, they can try to reach out to or, you know, what are the things that people can go, go to uh, to get support? The honest answer is 
I'm still I'm still learning and I'm still working through these difficulties myself. I suppose what I'll say is like like a lot of things it is just a day at a time. You know, rec- I don't know if I'll ever be recovered per se. I, j- I just think as long as I'm working through what is driving those things if you drill down to the the roots of of the problem and that's what that's where the healing work is and so it's really trying to find a therapist who understands those factors i mean in terms of like body dysmorphia i have found the the bdd foundation so body dysmorphic disorder foundation helpful beat you know eating disorders that's really helpful there's there's a lot of good, see my language processing is going now. There's yeah. a lot of people on Twitter that advocate and educate people around eating disorders. Um, and they understand your point in thinking that, you know, what you have be recovered from it. Like, like it, if you like had experiences of that, it feels like, still sometimes feels a trauma that you carry around and it's like something that you won't ever like forget about. And I understand probably there is like, if like you're, at a point where you got like a healthy relationship with food and you're not like experiencing like so much the symptoms and treats anymore of a certain body dysmor- uh, eating disorder condition. And like I understand there's probably still that worry and concern maybe you would like relapse or like it'll start again. But as I said, it's like making sure like you got trying to find the correct support services that are right to you and as I said it's something that you're ongoing and working on for yourself anyway. Definitely. And so I tend to ask this at the end of the podcast for like one thing in the world that could or in society anyway that could make a change for disabled and neurodivergent people is there any like one thing that you would like to see change for the better again because of my literal perception i'm like is this one thing or is it like a bunch yeah. of tangential tangential points okay my answer is understand us work with us to improve your services engage in co-production fully instead of using this consultative model make services more accessible for us and most importantly check your privilege because if you are not autistic, then you have no idea how it feels to navigate the world which isn't set up for you. Oh, thanks. And is there any, like, a final thought or something that you wish you had already said in the podcast, but you, you haven't had a chance to say right now, and early on in the podcast anyway? Is there anything else you have left to say? Um, yeah, I suppose just, just quickly. Yeah. Um, just, I just want to highlight, you know, the lack of training and education for for professionals um, and how we need a complete overhaul in how we're trained because historically, you know, the training is based on the medical model and outdated theories of autism. And even when I graduated from uni in 2019, I literally thought that social skills training was the answer, right? And, and I'm autistic. I didn't know any better. And so, you know, we need these, we need these trainings. We need more people coming forward. Yeah. So follow people like Neuroclastic, um, Autistic Parents UK or Academy, you know, look at the work from um, Kieran Rose and, and Amy Pearson and Naomi Fisher, Tanya Adkin, like there's so many, so much good stuff out there, but I think professionals just disregard it because, yeah. oh, it's not in a peer reviewed, you know, uh, research paper it, it's almost like well that's just one autistic person so yeah so yeah i just wanted to say that 
Yeah, it's like, so like, it's important that if like, whether you like working in like a health system, like whether it's the NHS or like uh, any like government or, you know, like parliament or like structure, that is important to like uh, consider to adapt and change sport for that in all areas like sport for negative foods and autistic people and and so that that's the adequate and correct sport autistic and negative and people need and that's something that there's needs changing and that people like yourself who are within the field of speech and language therapy who are autistic and neurodivergent are listened to and consulted on the training and what are set out as the guidelines and the guidance for any speech language therapist. Yeah, so, yeah, I've loved it today. You know, I get to talk about, um, well, I get to talk about myself, which is, you know, everyone likes to talk about themselves. Um, (laughs) And, well, maybe not everyone, but, um, yeah, and I get to talk about the things I'm really passionate about. Um, Yeah, so thanks for having me. Yeah. Is there anywhere else where you can see that where people can follow you online or like see any like uh, like visit any like you work and find out about yourself and the uh, st- stuff you do with your like training and sets? Yep. So I'm on Twitter, which is at Emilio Lees. Um, my website is autisticslt.com, and um, there's also my training company called Divergent Perspectives which I run with um, Elaine McGreevy, who's another speech and language therapist. So yeah, that is divergentperspectives.co.uk, I believe. I think it's co.uk, not com. Yeah. yeah. And thanks again for Emily Price for coming on the podcast. And if you are affected by any issues mentioned in the podcast, like eating disorders, you can visit BTD, the charity in the UK that... Uh, focuses on eating disorders and you can find the body dysmorphia foundation as well if you experience any issues with body dysmorphia and need some uh, helpful support and advice but you can find them online and across social media and there will be references to where you can find those services on the website www.newrainbowproject.com is where you can find all that information as well in the resources area and you'll be able to find in the coming days information on the different resources and information Emily Price has said and where you can find her content and this the stuff that and the write-up of what she has said in this interview. As I hope you enjoyed this interview and with visiting our website you'll be able to get uh, any updates on guests and any up-and-coming ideas and content that I am producing for the New Rainbow Project. Early on in the interview uh, before the interview, I linked to social media accounts as at Nero Rainbow UK on Twitter, at Nero Rainbow Project on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And for anyone who wants contact on email, it's Neurocast at NeuroRainbowProject.com. You'll be able to find those details on the website 
and in the description of today's episode. And please, if you listen to this interview, please consider sharing this with people and giving this a positive review on the social honours uh, plat- podcasting platforms which you're listening to this interview right now. And please subscribe and keep and follow on, subscribe to this podcast and follow for more on social media. And this has been a podcast hosted by myself, Autistically Aaron, for Neural Rainbow for the Neural Rainbow Project, produced by Avo Audio. Until next time, have a good one.